0: Welcome to Beyond the block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism Derek how are you doing today sir
1: yeah I'm doing really well I mean there's a lot of stuff that I've been doing uh, pretty excited about some of the things that I've been learning and uh, preparing um, yep I'm I'm smiling today so that's good Oh I have a joke for you why oh, okay. are gay d- <laughs> why are gay dudes always smiling because we can okay. never keep a straight face oh man <laughs> Uh, All right. Oh, <laughs> and one other thing I wanted to say is someone this past week in my ward told me that I'm an MVP of the ward, and I thought, oh, that's a great honor. Um, I really felt honored and affirmed by that. Uh, I've done a lot of work in my ward to support people and to uplift people and to teach people, so I'm glad that uh, that has been noted. How have you what been about-
0: doing church?
1: So my ward has been meeting sometimes on Sundays for a, basically a sacrament meeting without the sacrament, kind of like a devotional thing. We also had a fast and testimony meeting um, at the beginning of May. And so we're, yeah, it's... uh, Was this all
0: via Zoom? Yes. Okay, Mm -hmm. just making sure.
1: Yep, all, there's also... Uh, relief society meetings and elders quorum meetings not every week but there's some of those scattered around so there's a, it's not every week that we do something there's something
0: different every week
1: what about you anything uh exciting for you going on
0: um nah like really I'm just exhausted man like both like mentally spiritually just exhausted a lot has happened throughout the course of the last week and I'm Still, honestly, just trying to cope with it and just trying to, you know, get my energy back, trying to, you know, be able to work and all that stuff. You know, I know everything's going to be okay and whatnot. I'm just, you know, I'm just drained, you know, being ready for today, being ready for this Sunday, like just anticipating all that has really worn on me mentally. So I've just been trying to find ways to, you know, keep my spirits up as well as maintain the necessary focus to be as good of a minister as I can in whatever capacity, and also make sure I'm in a position to receive personal revelation. That, that struggle has not really been going in my favor, but you know, this too shall pass. So I at least am optimistic. Well, I'm glad that you have some hope. Yeah, that's all we can do, man. Like we got to have hope and uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a reason to hope. So if nothing else, I always got that. It's always pulled through for me in the past, though it's taken a longer time than others at certain points in my life. But, you know, I do rejoice in the fact that everything is going to work out in the end. And, you know, that's a that's a good reason to hope. So, anyway. With that, there have been a couple of things that have been happening within the past week. We got a couple just things that are worth mentioning in terms of church news Um, probably the most notable is the new guidelines for art in the church buildings. You hear about that, Derek? I did hear about that. Okay. So what it looks like is it's just basically the church has some guidelines about art that is going to be in our meeting houses, specifically where it's going to be put and what it's going to depict. And probably the majority of the conversation that I've seen about this particular story is what the art is going to depict, which is primarily the savior. So what they've done essentially is reduce the number of paintings that are going to be shown in our chapels to 22 different paintings. And every single one of them depicts the savior in some way. And this is in an effort to keep our meeting houses more Christ-focused, which is something I can vibe with. What do you What do you think about that, Derek?
1: Yeah, I like it. I think this is a, um, a cultural shift. Now, most, at least most meeting houses that I've been in, it's already been mostly Christ-centered. But I've right. seen some places where you walk in the entryway and you'll see. Um, Paintings like uh, of restoration era paintings like the first vision or the pioneers or temples Uh or those things, and I think those actually shouldn't be our focus. I really like the idea of the focus back on the Savior, Uh back on what we have in continuity with other Christians. I think that really because we're not we don't worship Joseph Smith, we don't worship President Nelson. That's not the center jewel of the gospel. And I think um I think that's overall a good a good thing. However, I wanna I want to talk to you about what do you think of the fact
0: that all of these Jesuses are white Jesus. Yeah. Um Jesus ain't white. Like that's not my primary issue though. I, I wouldn't mind seeing the occasional white Jesus among Jesuses of other ethnicities that way, the proposed art wouldn't just be a uh, a mirror of our worlds, but a window into others as well as an opportunity for more people to see themselves represented in the divine. My my problem is is that we we know that Jesus' complexion is likely closer to mine than it is to yours, yet we continue to depict him as white, and that that we're doing in twenty two different portraits. There there are scores of brilliant depictions of Jesus of different colors by artists of different colors and genders. But this is what we go to a historically inaccurate depiction that was actually used to oppress people. And we're doing that 22 times like white Jesus has consequences and, and the church doesn't seem to doesn't seem to get that yet. So to me, this is a missed opportunity to speak to the global church in a in a positive way.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering if there's some aspect of this that really centers the white Utah leadership. I, I get why they want it for themselves, but why do they want to impose this on the rest of the world? And I think this goes back to things like around the the hymnal as well. like why does worship need to be the same? Why does you know, our singing need to be the same around the world? Um, even our dress of, of wearing shirts and ties. Like there are cultures that don't wear shirts and ties and you go over to the, the, the LDS, you know, our presence, uh, our church is there and they're wearing shirts and ties like they're sitting in Utah. I'm like, why are we doing that? I think this there's an element of colonialism definitely, here definitely. where what happens I think is that when the, because obviously the leaders do their visits around the world. They go places and they, they do all these trainings, firesides, devotionals, uh, you know, stake conferences. These leaders go to these places and when they go there, they want to feel comfortable. They want to see white Jesus on the wall. They want to have all their favorite hymns. They want everyone to look like it's Utah. I'm like, the Savior didn't look like he was from Utah. He's got a beard mm-hmm. and he's not wearing a shirt and a tie. Like this is an aesthetic choice and it's done yeah. for the comfort of some people and at the expense of others. Like I wish we had more music like the black church uh, in our church, like not just for the sake of the black saints, but we would all be enriched by it. Right. Um, if that is an offering that the black saints want to share with those who are not black. Right. I'm mean, like, that would be cool. And we don't have any, as far as I know, hymns from the black heritage in our hymnal.
0: I don't think we do. I don't think we do. Uh,
1: and most other white, like, you know we've got other white denominations like the lutherans and the episcopal church which are more than 90 percent white and they have they have african-american spirituals in their uh hymnals and you know i i think there's something that we're missing out by only drawing upon the talents of of one portion of our church
0: yeah and when it comes to the liturgical arts we we know that it's easier for people to commune with the divine. The more the experience of worship is uh, accessible, and seeing yourself in the experience of worship is a significant way to do that. I don't. I don't see how we're going to reach every nation, kindred, tongue, and people if if we're not able to make the divine accessible. And like I said before, this felt like a missed opportunity to uh, to do that.
1: Yeah, and I think. One of the things that's striking to me is maybe I mentioned this already is how it connects us with other Christians because it downplays to some. Obviously, we're not downplaying as a whole the first vision, the temples, the pioneers, all these other things. But we are recentering those in service of Christ. I think all of those things point to Christ, and I think that's where we're trying to focus the the most prominent art in our mm-hmm. buildings And I'm wondering if this is done with the sense of like connecting us with other Christians. Mm. And if so, where that logically would lead could be to um, depictions of the cross because that is another thing that really distinguishes us. And it's kind of historically uh, contingent. It's almost by accident that we don't have the cross because from what I understand, in the 19th century, many latter-day saints did wear cross necklaces and have the cross as a symbol on books and things i don't think we really had crosses on the the meeting houses like a steeple but the cross was present as a symbol in latter-day saint life up until i think the 20th century and then it somehow through some historical Accident kind of fell away. I think to to uh, contrast with the Catholics at a certain time in our in our history of wanting to distinguish ourselves from what some people thought was the great and abominable great and abominable church. But I think we've gotten away from that, and I think we've got realized we have more in common with our other uh, our Christian siblings. And here's the oh here's the real funny thing is in the Latter Day Saint world. Folklore blooms like weeds, yeah, because we don't have a trained professional clergy, and there's good reasons for that, but because we don't have this standardized we've got all of a sudden one person can just say something on their mission, then it spreads to all the other missionaries and it spreads to the whole world, some whatever theory, kind of like the theories about why we don 't ever hear about heavenly mother, people invent all sorts of reasons that have no basis in the sources. I think this is the same here. All mm-hmm. People will invent reasons why we don't have the cross, and none of those reasons are sustained in our sources. Like people will say, we, we just want to focus mm. on the living Jesus. But, but that's focus not what the we do Christ, in a sacrament. Yeah. We literally show his death. Uh, we're And we're comfortable in the temple with certain things that show the crucifixion of Christ. There's just a whole bunch of things that we center on the death of Christ and of course, Paul did this as well. He talks he says, uh, you know, talks about the cross all the time. And I think there's a there's a case to be made that eventually we will be mature enough to uh, to start using the cross again symbolically. I'm wondering if that will happen, and I have no objection to that if it happens. I think it will it will really help help us focus on what's real, uh, focus on the Savior in another way that we don't normally do, and also help. Make, make our content accessible to other Christians who are wanting to learn about us.
0: And I haven't thought about that specifically, that this would make us accessible to other Christians. I remember, like the one thing that kept coming to my mind when I saw that particular news was, you know, ever since last conference, President Nelson really seemed intent on making sure that we put focus back on Christ, that we make sure we refer to the church by the true name, like our actual name, refer to members with the name, refer like the logo change and everything. I just saw this as a way for us to further put our focus on Christ. But I definitely did not necessarily um, view this as a way of making ourselves accessible or to, to to other Christian churches. So that that's definitely something to consider as well. And also make us more accessible to people who have some kind of belief in christ or don't have some kind of belief in christ and still want to be able to know what we're about by stepping into our foyers or seeing our materials so okay then with that let's go ahead and move on to the come follow me before we do that we just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the dialogue podcast network a collective of independent interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful respectful and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so moving on. We are in Mosiah chapter 25 through 28. Derek, do you want to set the stage for uh, what we're about to discuss?
1: Well, the only thing I want to say is to look at what the genre is. And in many ways, what we've got is a journal account. This isn't exactly a first-person journal account, but it is very personal. It is, like, it is given with the sense of eyewitnesses who were there, sources that, that told their stories, and it very much reads that way. And you see the impact of certain things in certain individual lives just like a journal. And I think that's, uh, that's kind of all I wanted to say. And that really sets us up to go into talking about this event in Mosiah 25, verses 7 and 8. And what happens here, I'm not going to really read it. But here, Mosiah read the records to people. And these are the records of the people of Nephi and the people of Limhi. Uh, they, uh, they were all... Is that right? Oh, wait, no. We've got the records of Zenith, and then the records of Alma, and then the records of the... Yeah. So we've got a whole bunch of records going on here. And he read them all. He assembled people together, read them, and they were amazed at these stories of deliverance, and they were filled with an exceedingly great joy. Okay. And so these are the two lessons I have especially for LGBT people. One is that we need to get familiar with the records of prior generations of LGBTQ folks. Many of us are raised by cis or straight folks. We don't have the stories of wisdom, endurance, and deliverance passed down to us. We're just isolated. We're raised in a way that we don't have this intergenerational connection already built in. So many of us who are LGBT, when we come out, We don't associate much with the older generation of LGBTs. You know, our dating partners and our friends mostly come from our own peers, and so tragically, each new generation of LGBT folks is positioned to reinvent the wheel. And there are so many treasures that we forego if we're not diligent about reading the records of prior generations. And Mm. to me, that's really important to go back and see, well, what did the Stonewall survivors say you know what did those Mm -hmm. of the AIDS generation like what was their experience like those will be lost if they're not passed down and there's no automatic way of passing that down which leads to my second lesson the second lesson is that we who are LGBT today must keep records of our own journey we must leave records as an inheritance to future generations of LGBT folks so that the Lord's miracles among us may be remembered mm. generation after generation.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. Not too long ago, we discussed the importance of record keeping when we got to the beginning of Mosiah. I think this, I mean, we probably did it on the show too, but we definitely did it for the Dialogue Sunday School that we did not too long ago. And And some of the reasons given were to for record keeping were to preserve their history, to preserve their religion, and to become people of understanding. You've already talked about the importance of preserving the history of your people, but I really like the idea of preserving the religion of LGBTQ saints, of preserving a theology that affirms you, even in the face of negation, for lack of a better word, that leads to the becoming people of understanding part. You're really putting yourself and your spiritual descendants in a better position to succeed and thrive when they understand the struggles and triumphs of those who came before, in addition to the wisdom they gained. I think you said it on the show before that the records we write today will be the scriptures for the next generations. And I love the idea of a record for queer folks that can speak to them and affirm them the way the scriptures are intended to.
1: Right, and I think that's especially important in our case because... A lot of people make the parallels between ethnicity and LGBT identity, and there, and you can make some parallels, but I think what's different is, like I mentioned, is we're raised in in a very isolated way. Right. Imagine what if if every person of color was raised by white people in a white neighborhood, in a white school, and they had no connection with their the people of their own. Ancestry i mean, like mm-hmm. that's kind of what that's that's more like what an LGBT situation is yeah so that's all the more reason why it's important for us to draw upon the records of our LGBT ancestors hmm we don't even really call them ancestors right but in a sense there are our, our spiritual they're you, ancestors. your
0: spiritual ancestors yeah
1: and speaking of these records then I want to go into Mosiah 25 verse 16 and here it says, And he, Alma, did exhort the people of Limhi and his brethren, all those that had been delivered out of bondage, that they should remember that it was the Lord
0: that did deliver them. Ah, yeah. That's uh, that's an and important th- distinction.
1: And maybe I missed this in the text, but what I find interesting is... You
0: did not. Is... You did not, yeah, if, you, if you're going that, where I think you're going. To my
1: knowledge, when this deliverance was originally narrated in Mosiah chapter 22, it was not attributed anywhere to the Lord. We have no voice or command of the it Lord in that text. We see no direct miracles of the Lord. Limhi's people, according to the narrative, seem to escape the Lamanites by their own doing. So it's interesting that Alma, on further reflection, sees the Lord's hand in it. So one lesson we can learn is not to wait for what we think God looks like in action. Like we have maybe some specific idea of of what God looks like in action, but we shouldn't wait for that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we need to just act on our promptings and trust that future retellings of the record will clearly see the hand of God in it. And this reminds me a lot of the book of Esther, which doesn't even mention God once. It mentions fasting, but it doesn't mention prayer or a voice of the Lord, miracles, anything God directly. Mm -hmm. But I think later interpreters have gone back and said, look, God actually was behind the scenes the whole time working throughout.
0: Yes. Yes. I really appreciate you saying that for, for a few reasons, but uh, I was, I was fascinated with the exodus of the people of Limhi for this very reason. We knew that they prayed for deliverance, but that deliverance certainly didn't come in such a fantastical way as it did in Alma's exodus narrative or or the exodus narrative that we that we find in the scriptures in in the bible they they prayed for deliverance and they got ammon, but with the addition of ammon they they had all the tools they needed for their exodus they had Ammon's crew, who had access to a place where Limhi's people were welcome, and they knew the way there. They had a great plan from Gideon, and then they had a weakness in the Lamanite defenses to exploit, and some booze. They had everything. All they needed was to organize and execute. It's a further testament to God's preference to, to, uh, to conserve his power to allow for the full use of human ability and agency. But that doesn't make their exodus any less of a miracle. God made sure that they had enough to accomplish their task, and they did. Less fantastically, but they did it. This also spoke to me as I seriously considered for the first time black separatism as a method of dealing with white supremacy. Uh, I'll put the piece I did for By Common Consent up if y'all want to check that out for more detail. But for the work of of civil rights, we, we may get inspiration or we may not, but if we have the tools to do something that can help us, then God might touch it
1: I wonder do you do you see a lesson here for the people who look at the nineteen seventy eight revelation and say, "Oh wow, that is just so convenient to think about what was going on in America in the sixties and seventies. The church mm-hmm. leaders must have just did it on their own initiative and they wanted to make this change, and this wasn't really led by God; it was completely you know a suspicious coincidence and like but here we have examples of leaders doing what needs to be done and then later generations saying oh that really was from the Lord how do you think there's a connection here that could be made
0: um I, I'm, I'm open to the possibility of the Lord touching hearts of our leadership and guiding them into a frame of mind where they could do a little more than just consider the lifting of the ban I'm also open to the Lord using the righteous indignation of others as a tool and I might be open to other scenarios but I I've never considered uh, such a thing. And I guess the circumstances surrounding the revelation may not be all that significant to me, but I can at least say that I'm at least open. Oh
1: yeah. Okay.
0: But yeah, let's go ahead and move on to a uh, chapter, uh chapter 26. Now the first heading in the come follow me manual states that we are responsible for our own faith and testimony and That's a sentiment I can get behind. It it cites the first six verses of Mosiah 26 to say as much, and I have a hard time with that part. Like, that part speaks of the rising generation and how they were too young to understand King Benjamin's words and didn't believe any of the traditions of the previous generation. And because of that, they couldn't understand the word of God and didn't join the church and caused other people to commit sin. That's basically the gist of the first six verses. The point is taken. That you can't get past your testimony. That you can't pass your testimony. Onto your children. But a whole generation of unbelievers. Like what happened there? Did their time in captivity have anything to do with that? Like I know within the black community anyway. There are many of our generation. Who shirked the white Jesus Christianity. Of our parents generation. As soon as they moved out the house. And there are many who still identify as believers, but they don't go to, uh, but they don't go to church. And I can't help but wonder if there's something similar happening there, perhaps due to some generational trauma. I I, I don't know, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's worth considering. And this idea that we're responsible for our own faith and testimony is also something worth considering. Albeit, I'll probably do it outside of the context we just discussed we in the church, we we talk a lot about self-reliance, but we haven't really cultivated spiritual self-reliance. Too many members in their adult lives experience feelings of betrayal when they learn troublesome things about our history or our policies, and they're not spiritually equipped to deal with them. Folks on the margins tend to have more resilience as their spiritual strength can be can be a matter of survival. Uh, this preserved them in times of trial and trauma, but others don't have those experiences, and we're not really encouraged at church to view our scriptures, our doctrine, or our history in a in a way that's relevant to them. It, it becomes ritual with more social and cultural meaning than spiritual meaning, and then as soon as we stop vibing with the culture, they're gone, either forgetting or never having come to learn what the teachings of the church could really could really offer them or never being taught to care
1: right and I think part of the direct consequence of what you just said is that we should have more of these marginalized members who have their faith tested and have a lot of wisdom from that experience we should have more of the marginalized membership in leadership so that we can mm. spread that and and that wisdom can be passed on and there can be models for people and i think we would all be better off so it's not just Absolutely. some it's not just some affirmative actiony agenda there is a legitimate reason to have certain kinds of people in leadership that are that are, would otherwise be underrepresented
0: it's sociology 101 really like the more representative a place's leadership and organization's leadership is of the population that they oversee, the healthier that organization is. Like that's, I mean, that's not, like you said, not some affirmative action-y stuff. That is, that's science.
1: And what you said about, uh, about having your own testimony is also very important because I think a lot of members, I think we talked about this last time, they just want to be spoon fed by the leaders, and they outsource everything to the leadership, saying, "Oh, they've got them you know they're going to do the manuals, they're going to do this, they're going to tell us what we need to know. We're, we could just wait until general conference to find out what the Lord wants of us." I'm like, "No, that that's not how it works." If if someone asked you which is more important, the uh, sort of general revelation to the pro- to the prophet for the whole church or personal revelation to you as an individual, well, I would mm-hmm. say. I would respond by asking, which is more important, breathing out or breathing in? <laughs> you need both. You absolutely, you cannot do it one one without the other. If you do it with just individual mm-hmm. revelation, you have a problem. If you do it with just what the prophet says to the whole church in general, you have a problem.
0: You need both. Definitely. Brilliant observation. I like that analogy, breathe in or breathe out. Just <laughs> It's so simple, but it's brilliant. I really like it. And that kind of leads us to
1: um, what happens later. So we've got one of the important things to note is that Alma, his own son, also named Alma, is in this rising generation of unbelievers. And we have to realize, oh, there's this personal connection here. Mm -hmm. And so now let's go to what Alma does about this. This is Mosiah 26, verses 13 and 14. And now the spirit of Alma was again troubled, and he went and inquired of the Lord, what he should do concerning this matter. For he feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God. And it came to pass that after he had poured out his whole soul to God, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, and then you've got paragraphs and paragraphs of what the Lord said, which I'm not going to get into. But I want to go back to what it says. It says he feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God. And that's why he went to the Lord. And then it was after that he poured out his whole soul mm-hmm. and he got the got the revelation so notice what Alma does not say he doesn't say well I'm a prophet so I can sit back knowing that whatever I do will be right no he has a right. sober and wise fear that he should do wrong in the sight of God do wrong to or for another fellow soul so he knows that he's not infallible mm. he knows that he could mess up and hurt someone And so he approaches this issue Mm -hmm. precisely because someone else's soul is at stake with a great humility and caution. And he definitely sees himself as accountable. He's like, look, I could get this wrong. I need the Lord to hold me accountable on this. So all of us in the church should Mm -hmm. be like Alma, especially local leaders who are face to face, face to face with the worth of individual souls Mm -hmm. and can very easily get things wrong. And notice that it is important that God poured out his whole soul to God. And only after that did he get the direction from the Lord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we in the church have made it a practice to pour out our whole souls to God in order to receive further enlightenment and knowledge for LGBTQ folks. Probably not. If the (laughs) barriers, if the barriers placed on LGBTQ folks were placed on straight and cis folks in the church you had better believe that there would be a lot of praying a lot of pouring out of whole souls and this entire dispensation would not rest until we got it right and so i wish people would do for us who are lgbt what they would do for themselves
0: <laughs> that's literally that's literally the first and second great commandment that's literally the second great commandment <laughs> I know. I love how it just all keeps coming back to that. Just really so many of our problems will be solved if we really read intention into these commandments that Christ has given us. And here's the
1: here's the real tragedy is that most people in the church, even good people, haven't thought about LGBTQ issues in any critical or analytical way for more than 20 or 30 minutes in their life.
0: I'm glad you said that, by the way, that even good people can do things that are that, you know, are inadvertently harmful.
1: You know, I had a I had a sealer in the temple. We, I was doing ceilings and he turned to me and said, you know what? I just realized that asking you to marry a woman would be like asking me to marry a man. I'm like, oh, that's and in my head. I'm like, you just now realize that Yeah, you're, yeah. you're like <laughs> you're like 70 years old. And you have not even thought about the implications of your own perspective on my actual would life. But why would? Until <laughs> now, M- most people haven't thought about this for more than twenty minutes. I mean, obviously, people have just re- re- retweeted and repeated those uh-huh. sound bites, but they haven't really critically and analytically mm-hmm. thought through for more than twenty minutes in their life anything about LGBT issues. I, and i think
0: and many of them don't until it affects them or somebody they yeah, love
1: yeah yeah and so that's not pouring out your whole soul if you just thought about it mm-hmm. for 20 minutes in your life and moved on and i didn't even consider what the what the implications are and what the even the possibilities could be you're not pouring out your own your whole soul so let's let's just put mm-hmm. that as a punctuation on this
0: okay sounds good to me
1: any and then let's look at back at what what the, uh, go on to Mosiah 27. 27. Because starting, these are the first three verses. And mm-hmm. what happened is these unbelieving individuals in the rising generation started to persecute the believers. And then I'm not going to read these verses for the sake of time. But what it says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 27 is that the church began to murmur and complain to their leaders concerning the matter, and they did complain to Alma. And then Alma went before King Mosiah, and then there was this proclamation saying that there should be no persecution. And then in the end, in verse 3, it says, And there was a strict command throughout all the churches that should be no persecutions among them, that there should be an equality among all men. Mm -hmm. And what I want to point out is that they did complain to Alma. That's what the text says. They did complain Mm -hmm. to Alma. Mm -hmm. They held Alma accountable. Remember his character in chapter 26 where he named himself as accountable. So they held him accountable, and they didn't complain elsewhere. They didn't take their, their problem to some other people or some other group that couldn't do anything about it. They took it to the leader, and thus we see to use one of mormons favorite phrases <laughs> and thus we see that complaining works yes mm. there are condemnations of complaining in the scriptures i know the scriptures very well I, I, there's a there's a lot of them yeah. but those can't be lifted out of their situational context let me give an example let's talk about the act described by the phrase sticking a blade into someone is it bad or good well, if it's a stranger on the s- awful. Well, if it's a stranger on the street, it's bad. But if it's a surgeon who knows what to do and has consent, it's entirely different. So this basic description of complaining is like the phrase sticking a blade in someone. Mm-hmm. In different contexts, it can refer to very different things. Mm-hmm. And the major variables in whether complaining is good or not whether it's a sin or not, come down to the motivation, the spirit, and the effects. If it's done with the proper spirit toward the right outcome, complaining is not only permitted, but is righteous, and I would say it's even required. We're supposed to ask, seek, and knock. I mean, that's the basics of the teachings of Jesus. And I love what, what we have in Psalm 142. David was in a tight spot here. Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2 says... I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. And that is just a really brilliant example of pouring out your... And so many of the psalms are lament or complaint psalms. But anyway, back to what happens here with Elma is that the result of all this complaining was the end of persecution, the end of injustice, and the presence of an equality among all men. I think one of the things to keep in mind with equality is that some people in practice don't actually think that we're fully human, whether it's you're a person of color or a woman or LGBTQ in their head. They don't actually think that we're fully human and deserve equality and deserve the same opportunities that they take for granted as being part of a full human being. Right. And I, it, it's really almost sick to have to name it that way that they think we're not human. But that's but that's really you did, what they, they, they want to say deny it that people way. People the
0: full human experience, like that's. I mean, that's the right. vocabulary. That's the yeah. right vocabulary.
1: Because. They, they're, like, totally okay with having us having, a, having the, these injustices and deprivations. Not because they don't see the, the disparity, but they think that the disparity is okay because we don't deserve any mm. better. I mean, that's really what they're saying. Because I don't think there's anyone here that's going to deny the actual disparity. Right. You know, because people, you know, no one will say, oh, well, you know, we've got gay ceilings and straight ceilings. No one can say that. The disparity is clear. It's a matter of, is it justified or not? Mm -hmm. Are we fully human or not? And this gets back to um, something I wanted to say from Mosiah 27, verse 30. So here you have Alma the Younger, after this this major conversion experience, you have Alma the Younger's confession. He says, I rejected my Redeemer and denied that which had been spoken of by our fathers. But now that they may foresee that he will come and that he will remember and that he remembereth every creature of his creating, he will make himself manifest unto all. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to name that repentance and conversion narratives can be used to bully people, especially LGBTQ people or people going Mm -hmm. through a faith crisis or faith transition. Mm -hmm. But when we focus on the gospel of Jesus and the presence of love, understanding, unity, and peace that the gospel brings— We realize that people who are engaged in racism, misogyny, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, that they all need to be called to repentance just like Alma the Younger Mm -hmm. was called to repentance and in fact his father prayed for for that. And you know, based on what we see from certain comments on the internet, there are thousands of saints out there who aren't right with the Lord.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. One of the marks of true repentance here is Alma's Realization that every creature, every creature of the Lord's creating, is remembered by God. Sin makes you forget this, but repentance makes you remember it. That God knows and includes and loves and plans for every creature of His creating. I just love that Alma, after he repented, said, He remembereth every creature of His creating.
0: That means something to folks and communities who aren't inclined or primed to feel like God remembers them especially if they're not treated that way at at church or anywhere else they go but especially at church and I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because I I've read that phrase before and I read over it but it really is profound the way you read it considering who Alma became and how he how he spent his life the the rest of his life was literally spent in the service of god and he ended up getting translated which is a pretty rare feat i i think it's fair to say that this understanding shaped his uh shaped alma's ministry as well as his understanding of the atonement and is consequently one of the reasons his mission and those of the sons of mosiah to the lamanites were so successful these are actually about to be the first missions among the Limanites that are successful, spoiler alert, sorry, but there was a keen understanding of and belief in that truth and I think that has a, a direct contribution to both to how they live their lives and also the success of their missions.
1: Yeah, and that's why I directly want to connect that with his repentance. It was the repentance that in- enabled him to see a vast, more expansive view of God. Than See, that's probably why he was an unbeliever is he didn't have a very expansive view of God. Like the God that he thought he heard or was presented to him, that didn't make any sense. Yeah.
0: But once he— s- Can you say more about that?
1: Well, once he saw the true God— it, you know, that changes his view of God and it made it possible for him to believe again. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if this is making a lot of sense, but I think he, the God that he rejected earlier wasn't even a very realistic portrayal of the one true God. It was probably some other distortion right. that he maybe had some good reasons for rejecting. But once right. he got, Got in with the one true God who loves everyone and fights for every creature of his creating, then he's like oh yep i'm I'm on board with that and that colored his ministry for the rest of his life. He always came back to his conversion experience Very when he when he preached and when he taught people that's really a foundational experience in his life, and part of the consequences of that experience was coming to an acknowledgement that God remembers every creature which that's bold you know that's you know Mm -hmm. it's I don't know how to to exa, there's no way of exaggerating this saying that God remembers every creature that's probably the most radical thing we could say as people of color or women or LGBTQ people in the church God remembers Mm -hmm. us like wow that Mm -hmm. should get us excommunicated by by people <laughs> who are like the priests of Noah, who are like we don't want God right. to whatever, you know,
0: yeah. I I hate to sp- like come back to this, but uh, you know, I was thinking of white Jesus again as you spoke. Alma experienced God in a way that he could understand, in a way that was accessible to him, and that facilitated his conversion. This is another reason that portrayal of Jesus matters so much. The simple act of including and I think Jesus in this church will begin to. You know, tear down some barriers. It would begin to make Christ and our community of faith more desirable and more accessible to other people.
1: Yeah, and I want to move on and talk about another one of the implica- implications or consequences of this conversion experience for Alma the Younger and the, and the sons of Mosiah. And this is in Mosiah chapter 27, verse 35. And it says, and they, meaning Alma and the sons of Mosiah, they traveled throughout all the land of Zarahemla and among all the people who were under the reign of King Mosiah. Notice the scope there. It's They went to everyone, right, and admitted what they did. Let me get right. back to the, what it says. Zealously striving to repair all the injuries which they had done to the church, confessing all their sins and publishing all the things which they had seen and explaining the prophecies and the scriptures to all who desired to hear them. Notice that as an essential part of their journey and their repentance process, they did two things. One, they named their sins publicly and broadly, and two, they made themselves available for reparations. The the word repair is literally Mm. in this text. So we need to do the same thing for the sake of black saints in the church. Mm. We as a people haven't even clearly named that the priesthood and temple discrimination unilaterally inflicted on black saints for over a hundred years was a grievous and repugnant sin. Mm. Failure to name this sin hurts everyone, black and non-black.
2: Mm.
1: And I need to name that the reason we, we got in this situation is that the white church leaders didn't do what Alma did back in chapter 26, being humble, accountable, pouring out his whole soul, lest he get it wrong. White, le- white church leaders didn't do that, um, and in fact, remember Alma poured out his soul as if his own kid was among them because he was right. Mm-hmm. I think if Brigham Young had thought about Black Saints the way he would think about his own family members, he would have come up with a very different. Because he wants everything for his own kids, why wouldn't why wouldn't God want everything for all of His kids, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then and then it gets to point two reparations we also need to repair the damage dismantle the systems that perpetuate it and have a chance at real reconciliation black saints are still enduring the effects of this spiritual dispossession and we need to look at black voices in the church to to figure out and listen to what forms of reparation would be proper unless mm-hmm. anyone say that I'm making anti-racism an idol someone told me that on Facebook
0: earlier <laughs> Like, anti-racism which, isn't a Christian value. Like, that's... Right, right. That's like, bogus.
1: Okay. let anyone say that I'm making it an idol. All I'm calling for is the destruction of the idol of white supremacy, which is different. Mm. I'm just tearing down that idol, and people think I'm building a new one. Because for people with privilege, removing their treasured idol will look like establishing a new one. Mm-hmm. And I need to remind people that racial reconciliation isn't a liberal Mm add-on to the gospel. I'm not even really a liberal, by the way. You're not. Racial reconciliation isn't a liberal add-on to the gospel. It is at the heart of the gospel. Let's look at Galatians, Ephesians 2. Let's look at 3rd and 4th Nephi. All of these are about the direct connection between racial reconciliation and The gospel.
2: Yep. Speak on it. And in all of
1: these cases, the reign of Jesus as king explodes the foundations of racial injustice. Racial reconciliation and the repentance that must precede it are at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. And something worth mentioning is that oftentimes when people make those accusations, they're really trying to mask their own discomfort. Like I see this all the time in discussions on race. So any time... That I talk about racism, people want to be like, "Oh, you're just stoking divisions or whatever," and I'm just like, "No, like me not me talking about racism or blaming me talking about racism as a source of division in this country is like uh, is like blaming your speedometer for a speeding ticket you got. It's not the act of talking about racism that stokes divergence; it's the actual racism itself. And because you are uncomfortable when I talk about it, that means that an opportunity for unity is going to be on the other side of that discomfort. And people really need to sit in that. Like people really need to learn to tell the difference between their own discomfort and actual problems, lest they end up making themselves or making their own identities an idol. And Unfortunately, too many people's identities are founded on white supremacy, hence why they get uncomfortable anytime people want to address it in any kind of form. That's uh, that's all I got. Is there anything else in uh, Mosiah 27 or 28 you wanted to bring nope, up? Nope,
1: that's it for me.
0: All right, cool. Then uh, before we wrap up, just wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought, is uh, proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network or Lyceum, now is up and running. Um, Before we wrap up, any housekeeping items from us, Derek? I don't think so. Where can people find us?
1: You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
0: Yeah, and so far as I know, we don't got any events coming up except for our uh, Mormons Building Bridges uh, Sunday school class this Sunday via Zoom. Uh, Is there like a newsletter, or can do people have to be like on that... uh, page to know that it's coming how does that work how to how can people think, get access to I that i think
1: it's uh mostly done through the facebook group but if All anyone right. needs the link just send me a message somehow on facebook and i can give you the link
0: yeah i suppose we could also post it to the facebook page too like i right. mean is the is the link going to be available to do that like is it already right, available it's already
1: av- it's already available
0: okay then we could just do that and I'll I guess I could put it in the show notes too, assuming people can access links through that. So I think that's the only announcement that we have coming up. Is unless there's anything else, Derek?
1: No, there's that's it.
0: All right. Then thank you again for joining us guys. We really do appreciate you listening to us. Till we meet again next week.